All right, we are to the book of Micah uh, in our study through the Old Testament. Started out in Genesis way back in September, and are going to come up just a little short getting all the way through the 39 books of the Old Testament. Uh, but we'll we'll pause here and pick back up uh, in the fall when we will return. I'm kicking myself, didn't look ahead at my schedule and think and process through stuff. You know, here we've been in uh, all the minor prophets, and you know they're giving their prophetic words and their warnings and their judgments and stuff. And then in the midst of that, you get Jonah, which is a narrative. It's a story, you know, kind of walks through all the details of that. And I gave that to Robbie last week, you know. So he got to pick up the, the narrative story. And now I'm back to uh, the prophetic warming, warnings of doom and gloom and stuff. So I was like, oh, man, I should have given him Mike, and I could have had, you know, Jonah last week. But don't, uh, as we get into this, remember, I don't think I've told you this, that the minor prophets are called the book of 12. If you pick up a Hebrew Bible and are looking through trying to find the minor prophets, you'll see just the list of the 12. They lump them all together. They are a single book. Uh, and they were prophesying uh, in a... a similar window of time. A couple of hundred year time period. Uh, we'll see some tonight roughly around 750 B.C. Uh, all the way down to some of them as early as 600 B.C. And some, you know, a few outliers in there depending on some stuff. But also remember in this window some pretty big uh, things that happened. 722 B.C. Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in 587, uh, is there 500s here? Sorry, uh, 587 BC are when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. Now remember too that Jerusalem was the capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom, but uh, Jerusalem, the city, fell later than the actual rest of the country because it was such a stronghold with the walls, was a secure place. It's like everything around it was surrounded, but Jerusalem held out for a little bit longer than the actual country of Judah. And so we've got these situations that are here, and I put this kind of up here because the reminder is that the book of 12, they all fall at various points in this. Some in the northern kingdom speaking to Israel. Some in the southern kingdom delivering messages to Judah. Each of these had kings or good kings and bad kings in here. And so these different prophets are speaking to the kings up here, the kings down here, kings in both. They're addressing this event in history or they're warning about this event in history or these events have happened and they're talking about why it happened, why this happened. And so that, that's just you need to keep that framework in mind when you look at these minor prophets. And as you come to them, understand where they fall in this continuum. Because as they speak to things, you want to know, are they here? Are they down here? Has this happened? Has it not happened? What are the groups? What are the dynamics? Who's the king that's on the throne? That context is so very important in prophetic literature. Because uh, I, I know for me, as I, Ray was talking about reading through the Bible... Reading through several times, getting to this part, reading this stuff, just my head would hurt and go, man, what in the world is he talking about? Who is he talking to? But finally getting to in seminary, going through some history classes, setting some context of this really helped a lot to be able to open the book up. And what I do now is when I'm reading through uh, is I try and look at, I've got a study Bible, and I try to always go to the front of that study Bible to each chapter and just read is usually a two to three page introduction to help remind myself and refresh my own mind of the context of what's happening. So, that in mind, we come to Micah, 
Uh, he is, the, which this book is named after. He's the primary character. His name means who is like the Lord. So his name is a question, uh, and obviously it's kind of a rhetorical question, that there is nobody who is like the Lord. There's nobody who's like God. Uh, he's got a pretty big spectrum here of prophecy. Uh, of prophesying from about 750 to 686 BC. We date that by the kings. We'll get to those here in just a minute, but we've got the kings listed uh, for that. He is a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea. So when you read those two books, these individuals were prophesying. They were ministering in that same window. Micah is one of the few individuals that you find he is quoted by another prophet in the Old Testament. A lot of prophets get New Testament quotations, but Jeremiah Jeremiah in chapter 26 verse 18 actually quotes from the book of Micah. So Jeremiah then obviously was written later, uh, but it's pretty interesting that Jeremiah quotes the message that Micah himself was delivering. What we know about him is where he was from. He lived southwest of Jerusalem. He was more of a rural agricultural part of the country. Uh, and you kind of see that coming through in his writings as he really focuses on the, the outcast, the, the down and out the lowly in society and culture then uh, and he really champions their cause and most of his message was directed to the leaders of Samaria and Israel was the northern kingdom, Samaria was its capital, and uh, the leaders in Jerusalem, which was the southern capital of Judah. So those are kind of the, the target of individuals that he's speaking to. The purpose of his book uh, that's listed here, he denounces idolatry. And we've talked about this and we've seen this all throughout uh, the Old Testament starting way, way back, all the way back in the book of Exodus. You remember this? You know, the, the whole coming out of Egypt and they get to the mountain and Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and what are the people doing? They're making golden calves down at the base of the mountain, you know, following these, these false gods, this idolatry. And so we see that it is a problem that plagued people for millennia uh, in this part of their history. And so we look at that and go, ah, you know, idolatry, well, we don't have little, you know, wooden or little metal things sitting up on there. But again, understand that idolatry is when something uh, other than God consumes our passions, our desires, our longings. When we want anything other than God, that can be a false idol, a fake God that begins to control and to influence us. You know, money, materialism, these type things can consume our passions and our pursuits and be set up as idols, false idols in our lives. And so this issue of idolatry uh, is, is denounced over and over again. Micah speaks to uh, corrupt leadership. He really drives home in this book the, uh, the importance of having godly leaders and being a godly leader. And then he also speaks about the social injustice uh, in both Israel and Judah. The interesting thing about Micah is uh, he he's tries to be as gentle as possible, uh, it appears in some of his writings. You can tell there's great concern, great compassion for the people that he's with. He loves them. He cares about them. It's like he, he's kind of a reluctant, doesn't really want to be the one given the bad news, but nonetheless, that's the task God has called him to. Uh, and so he does announce to them that uh, there is judgment, there is punishment coming, but he also has the great privilege. He's got one of the most specific prophecies about the Messiah, uh, 
uh, in all of Scripture. So he gets to really paint a picture of incredible hope for the people as well. And uh, I think probably just from what we were able to discern in the writings and some of this sort of stuff, I think Micah probably really enjoyed the hope part of his message, being able to say, hey, it's going to be rough, it's going to be bad, here's what's happening, this is going to transpire, but hey, there's good news. And it's really, really, really good news. Let me tell you about this good news that he probably seemed to really enjoy that. Well, let's uh, look at a couple of verses here. Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So there's where I was talking about that dating. So he lists the kings that he was uh, speaking to, where they were in Judah. He says, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And so he sets up and identifies that there's going to be destruction in Israel. Samaria, northern kingdom, so he's talking about 722 B.C., but also to Jerusalem, he looks forward to what happens in 587 B.C. when the Babylonians come to town. Uh, And it's interesting as he begins to make predictions about this, these guys weren't even on the scenes at this point. You know, so really to begin talking about that, it's like ah, there, there's nobody that that's not a they're not an influencer, but they would come to be that in the future. Uh, verse two sets up the motif that happens throughout this book. It is a courtroom kind of setup. Uh, as uh, Micah goes through, it's like he is an attorney presenting his case before the judge. When you've got someone who's guilty and he's the prosecuting attorney saying, here's the body of evidence. Here are the witnesses. Here are the accusations. And he brings all these things against Samaria, against Israel, against Jerusalem. And he points out what their sins have been. So he walks through in this courtroom motif. And there are three cycles that go through this, and they all start with the the word here. He says in verse 2, Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. Now, you think about being in a courtroom, and God is called against you as the witness. Well, what he says is going to be true, okay? I mean, you, you know that's going to be the case, and there, there's no refuting, and there's no punching holes in his argument. I mean, that's a pretty solid witness. And so he begins by saying, God is the one who has sent me, and here are his accusations. Here are the sins that you've committed. So that's in verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot like flesh in a cauldron I don't know if you remember uh, several months ago talking about the conditions of siege of a city being laid siege to does anybody remember any of that conversation I know your lives are changed by what I've been teaching stuff this, this year. But uh, in, in Jerusalem, and the way this worked in ancient times, uh, warfare very different than what we deal with and see today. But when warring armies would come in, you had big walls. Usually they were up on a hill. Uh, you tried to contain everything you could within those walls. If you could get a water source, if you could grow gardens and have your animals in there, you know, the bigger your city that you could fortify, you could hang out in there a long, long 
long time and be secure and basically wait for the other army to get tired, to get bored, or for another world power to come on and pull them away. And so that was very common in that time. But if a commander didn't want to wait because you were secure, then they would lay siege and they would start building a ramp called a siege ramp right up to your wall. They basically start putting rocks, dirt, whatever they can at the base and they build, you know, like a ramp to come up to come over the walls. Huge, huge endeavor. I mean, we're not talking bulldozers and earth movers and stuff. I mean, these are men coming and doing this sort of stuff. And if they were able to cut off the water flow, to cut off your food sources, things like that in a city, well, the conditions inside of a city got really, really bad with human waste being an issue, with garbage uh, and refuse that's there, and the conditions could get really, really bad. Starvation settles in, and it's just a, a awful, awful picture. Well, what happened in the, the scenario here is that uh, Assyria conquered Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom, fell, but Jerusalem, remember, was standing strong. Well, guess where Israelites in the northern kingdom fled when they were overrun by the Assyrians? They went to Judah, the southern kingdom. Well, when they started closing the noose on Judah as a kingdom, guess where most of the people, the inhabitants fled? Into the city of Jerusalem. And so you get these awful, awful conditions in there. Cannibalism, uh, but also not just the cannibalism that's taking place, some of the descriptors that are here, some of that is, is some metaphoric language just describing how the leaders, that's how chapter 3 here started out, that you heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? These leaders, these rulers, these governors given charge of the people who are under their care took advantage of them. And it was taking physical advantage of them. It was taking financial advantage of them. They leveraged everything for their own greed and for their own purposes. And that is denounced heavily here. These awful conditions of what's taking place. And here these leaders, these rulers are taking advantage advantage of. There's great injustice that's taking place. And Micah, uh, you know, speaks the Lord's words against these things that are happening. The other, uh, so the third cycle then of the, the next uh, indictment is in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with with Israel. And so here's that third cycle, the courtroom setup of God coming with his uh, list of accusations against the people. So that's kind of the setup. That's how the cycles come through uh, in those things. You see God bringing these accusations. Chapter 5, verse 2, the uh, context here of the Messiah being prophesied, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And so that is quoted by the wise men in Matthew who are coming to find Jesus. Uh, Herod is inquiring as to where they're going, why they're coming, and they cite 
Matthew, uh, Micah as why they're going and what they're looking for with this new king who has come. And so he gets a, a great citation here, a very specific uh, prophecy about the Messiah who is going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 6 verse 8, If you, you're probably familiar with 5-2, but this is the other verse that you may be very familiar with in Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So all the accusations of their injustice, of their inhumanity to their fellow man and stuff, he says in this verse, what does God require of you? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. And then the last section here, and this actually becomes a play on Micah's own name, verse or chapter 7, verse 18, who is a God like you? What did I say Micah's name was? Who is like the Lord. So this is a play on his name here. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So again, you see this message of hope that is here that Micah delivers to the people. Uh, and it's just a great description of God's grace, his mercy, uh, his, that he doesn't uh, hold on to his anger forever. And so it's, a, it's that message of hope that's there. So basically his cycle uh, starts out with the accusations. And then he moves into the uh, announcement of punishment that's going to come. But then he ends his cycles on with the messages of hope. So all three cycles follow this pattern, which is very common among all of the prophets. We see them very often the, an, announcing the punishment that's to come, yet ending with hope. Uh, so themes in theology through Micah. Uh, we just mentioned the, the messianic prophecy that's there. But he also describes uh, the world's future coming under the reign of this prince. So go back to chapter 5. So we see the prophecy about where he's born. But look at verse 3. It says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So we see this picture, this image of Christ who's to come, describes his character, that he brings this peace. Uh, and so it's a beautiful descriptor of the Messiah who is to come. But also he describes uh, the results within people and nations. Go back to chapter 4. It says, it shall, verse 1, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say. So first of all, understanding that it's talking about the, the mountain of the Lord, that he is going to be the pinnacle that people will flock to, they will worship, and we see this call to the nations. Understand, and, and you know, I think we've talked about this some, that God's call 
all his goal and aim of salvation has always been for the nations. People really sometimes will get locked in on the Old Testament. Well, that Israel was the nation of blessing and you know they were, they were the favored, they were the chosen people and God cared nothing about anyone else. No, 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 no. They were the chosen nation, God's people. You know, you'll be my, I'll be your people, you'll be my God. All of that is there. But when you look, God always speaks of and addresses all nations as a place and receiving the hope of salvation. That, that salvation from the beginning was always intended and designed that people from all nations would see and hear. It would come through the nation of Israel, but it didn't stop with them. It was to go to all nations and for all people. And so what's as a reminder for us that we've received salvation and it's a great gift and we're so blessed and we're so thankful to have it. But salvation isn't an end result for us. It should motivate us to do what? To go to where? All nations. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. And so God's uh, consistency through this. And so here he speaks of this mountain being lifted up, people from all nations coming. Uh, Verse 2, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. Look at what happens here. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And so the picture here is the weapons of war turn into weapons or uh, products of what? Farming, agriculture. You're, you're settled. If you don't need a sword to fight, to defend yourself, you're secure. Things are calm. There's great peace. You're like, hey, I got this metal. I don't need it for a sword. So we turn it into plowshares to be able to go and till the field and plant uh, crops that they grow, that we harvest. And so there's this settledness that comes into. The spears become pruning hooks. And so it's this picture of peace that comes under God's reign and under God's rule. Well, how does that happen? Chapter 5, the Messiah who is to come. Verse 4 says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And so here's the end of the cycle, this picture of hope coming back to what God will do in and among his people as they give themselves to him. So uh, Micah has some really uh, powerful messianic uh, pictures here of the Messiah who is to be born, what he would be like, but also the result of his uh, his rule and his reign, be that in times of peace on earth, but ultimately, finally, in his his uh, eternal reign uh, as ruler over his people. Number two, themes in theology, judgment and hope. Again, we have looked at this numerous, numerous times uh, that prophets didn't just come and deliver messages of gloom and doom, although that was a huge core component of what they spoke and what they talked about. But remember that their message was designed and very often instilled both fear but also hope within people. People were afraid when they spoke of the destruction, the desolation that would come. When they saw these things happen, there was great fear. There was great concern. But then following that up with a message of hope that, hey, it's not the end. Why is it not the end? Because of God's character. 
because of God's nature. Micah chapter 7, God's grace, his, his, uh, his never, not retaining his anger. Those things remind us of the hope that God brings. Even when we're afraid, even when times are difficult, when there's discipline and punishment for sin, God is still a God of hope who forgives and who brings us out of that uh, and, help, and brings us to a place where we can glorify him. Number three on here uh, is, is a important one for us to remember and to pray through in our lives individually. Guarding against the sins of of injustice. Uh, there were unjust business dealings. Uh, there was robbery, mistreatment of women and children. I just talked about the fact that uh, the leaders were living off of the people uh, who were working in the nation. And so it was just very, very difficult conditions. And the people showed no grace, no mercy. And these are their kinsmen. That's another part of the reason that there's such a, a big denouncement of what's taking place. These are their fellow countrymen that they're doing these things to. And God uh, detested that among his people, that they would treat uh, their fellow man uh, of their same heritage in that way. And so just thinking it through, you know, where does injustice dwell in our lives? You know, where are we uh, not just? Where do we take a pride amongst ourselves? Is it an individualistic sort of pride where we look at certain groups of people, uh, certain individuals, and, and why, why do we put ourselves above some people? Is it ethnicity? Is it socioeconomic status? Is it education levels? It can be very easy for these sins of pride, this haughtiness of spirit, uh, to come into our lives. And it may not look like some of the pictures that we see described here, uh, but we can still place ourselves above other individuals and lose our concern and our compassion for them because we think we're above them and they are beneath us. And so when these things happen, and as we ask God, and we should regularly ask God to help us see and evaluate in our lives, if these things are there, if these attitudes and these patterns of behaviors are there, uh, do we deal with those, we confess those, or do we rationalize them away or excuse them in some way? Uh, just to be, ask God to help us not be apathetic to the plight of those who are in need. Uh, and I, I'll tell you, this, this last week I've been uh, finally getting a little bit further into the book. I read a little bit from last month, I think it was, The Insanity of God. Gary had given me a copy of that. And so I started reading his copy. I was a few pages in and was ready to start highlighting and making notes. So I gave his back and bought my own copy so I could mark it up and stuff. And it is a powerful story. If you're a reader looking for a book, I'm not all the way through it. I've read some of the stuff at the end that Gary brought to my attention before. It's like, I want to go back and read it. And, and I'm, it's one of these things where I'm far enough in now that when I get a few minutes between stuff, I'm like, okay, I want to get this book out and keep reading. It's called The Insanity of God by Nick, N-I-K, Ripken. Uh, it's very powerful, but it, uh, the parts I'm at thus far uh, is his story of going to minister to refugees in Somalia back in the early 90s when there was great uh, genocide taking place, war between warlords and things, and, and uh, the United Nations wasn't able to go in. They weren't letting groups in. And man, this last chapter that I read, uh, several times through the book, I've already just wept with his pictures uh, and stories of dealing with uh, being in, in a hospital and seeing this little girl who he said was just so emaciated and weak. He said it just it was gut-wrenching to see that she was like the age of three and weighed less than like 20 pounds, I think it was. And she was just staring off into space, just so lifeless. And he walked over and said he just touched her cheek. And he said when it, when it did, he said the craziest, he said the, the response was not what he expected. He said this little girl just smiled. He said just ear to ear. He said, I could not believe the smile that came from this girl's face and the situation, the context and all that was there. And it just grieved his heart. And, and the challenge that he kept running up against was... He couldn't get resources to come in and give to the people. 
And he said the excuse that he kept hearing from, from government agencies, from churches and religious organizations was, it's not safe. It's not safe for us to send our people there. And he's like, it really bothered me the fact that we needed to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. We need to give a cup of cold water in his name. And he just recounts the awful horrors and things that are taking place. And the excuse that believers were giving was, well, it's not safe. And he just talks about how we put our safety above the call to go and minister in people's name. It's, it's just been a great book. And I, I thought about that as I was reading through just these sins of injustice, that it's so very easy for us to come up with excuses. Seeing a homeless person out as we, we drive up and down the streets or a family in need. Well, I don't have time. I have to turn around and go back. I don't want to give him money, so I need to go give food. So we come up with all these different things in our mind, and God's putting people in our path saying, here's an opportunity to show mercy and compassion and love, the love of God, the love of Christ to people. And it becomes very easy for us to rationalize and excuse these things in our lives. So, so really pray that God keeps us sensitive to that. Uh, number four on here is is the the point to be a godly leader. Again, I mentioned how the rulers, the priests, uh, the prophets were were denounced in this book. Uh, Micah really lays into them because as leaders, he's like, basically, you should know better. I mean, the, the prophets and the priests, these are the religious leaders who were taking and twisting and distorting God's word in order to continue the injustice against their own uh, kinsmen. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a tragic, tragic situation. And again, lest we sometimes look and go, oh, that's way back in, you know, different ages and different times and, you know, stuff has changed. It wasn't that long ago that in our denomination and in churches all across this nation, individuals stood in pulpits and uh, underscored and taught the virtues of slavery in our nation. In our country, in our denomination, you know, there, when you're talking about the Southern Baptists, that, that was one of the things that individuals in other parts of America, it's generally not as bad in the South uh, or in that general vicinity because of the heritage we carry. But some places that idea of Southern Baptists harken back to, and there are people who still a century, a century and a half later, recognize and understand that many Baptist churches were advocates and were using scripture to teach and underscore and say that slavery uh, was a good thing. It was a right thing to be doing. And so taking God's word uh, and preaching and applying in that way, uh, which is contrary to what God had to say. And there's a huge level of going back and looking at slavery as God speaks of that in the Bible and how it was set up in that day and age and culture for people to find a way from uh, poverty and not being able to provide for their family to be a slave for seven years to buy their freedom back and, and several different scenarios there as opposed to, well, just because you're of a different race or a different nationality, we're better than you. And so you sell them and treat them as you would property. It's a very different contrast of of biblical pictures of of the slavery teachings in the New Testament from what's there. But it's just a reminder to us that as leaders, and here's the thing, we all have influence, circles of influence, and places of which we exercise leadership, whether it's in our home and our families, at some level in the workplace, even as a peer and a coworker, people look to, to leaders uh, to, to lead from within those things. In those environments, in those places, God calls us to be godly leaders, and to take a right stand, and to uh, stand for the truth of his principles, or the truth of his word, and on the principles that we see there. Uh, And so the other side of this, the side of this coin is this. When when you are a leader and God calls you and gifts you and places you in a place of leadership, 
you are held accountable for how you leverage that leadership and that lack of leadership or your lack of faithfulness in that place. It comes with greater responsibility. And so we should take that charge. We should take that call, that responsibility, very, very seriously. That God gives us the opportunity to lead. And we we need to lead in a godly way because God is looking to us with high expectations and high standards for us to be faithful leaders uh, in those places and in those venues. So, there's the book of Micah. Questions on that? All right. Next week, we will get into the book of Nahum. Nahum, 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 so I usually say it. And uh, that will wrap us up in our study through the Old Testament, and then we'll pick up in the fall with Habakkuk. That's a fun one to always say, Habakkuk. Not, not enough of vowels, it feels like, in there. Okie dokie. Well, let's pray, and then uh, we will uh, break up into our prayer groups as well. Lord, again, thank you so much for your, for your word. Lord, we thank you for Micah's stance. Lord, for the truth that he spoke. Uh, Lord, he dealt with issues that still rear their heads in our lives, in our culture, in our churches today. Uh, But Father, we thank you that your word has stood the test of time. And so uh, the messages he delivered to leaders, Lord, to uh, social injustice as it took place. uh, Father, these are words that are very near and dear to our hearts that we need to apply in the many situations and the context in which we live our lives today. So we pray that just as Micah was faithful in delivering uh, truth that needed to be spoken, but Lord, he didn't just end with truth and the punishment that was coming. Lord, he spoke of the hope that was found in your son, Jesus Christ, and and he spoke of the impact, Lord, the changes that could be wrought uh, in lives as they were surrendered and submitted to Jesus and leadership in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we too would be those uh, bearers of good news and of hope for people, or to speak your truth, but also to share that, Father, you provided a way that we could be forgiven of our sins, we could be made new, we could become new creatures, new creations, and, Father, through that, we can take the hope of, of your Son, Jesus Christ, to the nations, Lord, that all people may hear and be given the opportunity to respond to the gospel message of your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we are thankful for that salvation, and we pray that you you would help us to take seriously, Lord, our call to go and share that with all peoples. We pray this, Father, in your name. Amen.